This week I was your missionary to the Springs in uh, Gladwin, a camp of senior high uh, students. And when I walked in on Monday or Sunday night, the director said, this is Abby. You should know Abby. And I'm like, hmm. He goes, no, I don't think you've met her before. When I was 10 years old, my grandparents were at Grace Baptist Church in South Bend, Indiana, and I went to a revival service, and the preacher um, preached me under conviction. And my mom had been really faithful at telling me some areas of my life that I needed to uh, shore up as a Christian. And so there was that wonderful mom guilt that hung over me, the mom guilt transferred to me, and, uh, which was helpful for my spiritual growth, and I thank God for it. And I went forward in the invitation uh, the pastor there was a man whose name was Dale Mead. And he, Dale Mead said, Kenny, there are three things you need to know. Since you're a Christian, you need to rededicate your life to the Lord. And remember, these three things, if you do these three things every day, you'll grow. But if you stop doing these things, you'll stop growing. And he said, number one, read your Bible every day. Number two, talk to God, pray every day. Number three, witness to somebody every day. And then he sent me a letter, which I still have, June of 1969. He sent me a letter that, that also enumerated those three things. In uh, 1996, I was interviewing to be a pastor up in northern Michigan at First Baptist Church in Fremont. And my wife said, you ask them this question. She says, um, ask them, who was your last pastor and why did he leave? Isn't that an interesting question. Lois says, I want you to ask him that and tell me what they said. So I said, who was your last pastor and why did he leave? And then everybody got really quiet because they'd been through some difficulty. And then there was an older gentleman named Jim Cones sitting right over here and he hadn't spoken yet. And when he did speak, you could tell he had the respect of everybody in the room. And he said, well, I think, I feel like our last pastor was Dale Mead. I'm like, Dale Mead? Why, I have a letter from Dale Mead. He used to be like my grandparents' pastor. And then Jim Cohn said, my daughter married his son. Well, his daughter married Pastor Mead's son, and they had children, and they had children, and one of them was Abby. Abby at camp was Pastor Mead's great-granddaughter. And so when you serve the Lord, and when you go where he says to go, and when you do what he says to do, and when you say what he says to say, you have no idea the things that will happen that are just so precious. And that's what happened this week. I want to talk to you in this series of messages. We're in the second in a series of messages that goes throughout this summer about how to keep the fire of your faith burning all of your life. And that's why we're calling it Between the Fires, because we're kind of using that camp theme. This sermon, these sermons aren't about camp. They're about you. But it's a camp theme, like when you went to camp as a kid, and you gave your testimony, and you resolved to follow the Lord, and you thought, how can I keep my campfire burning until next year at this time? But the real question is, how do you keep the fire of faith going for all of your life? Because you can. And I'm speaking very practically about that. I'm wearing the camp shirts from various different camps, and you can do that too if you want to, so that we can remember these camps in prayer, but we can also kind of remember what it was like to pursue God, to, to listen to God in the out of doors, to, to have a, a, a youthful, almost a childlike approach to walking with the Lord. And how can we, and of course, he has a greater desire for us to keep our campfire burning and a larger peace in that then sometimes we really realize. Have you heard of the phrase, by the skin of your teeth? 
You heard of somebody saved by the skin of your teeth? You've heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard this before. I said it. Yes. How many of you know where that comes from? Comes from the Bible. Comes from the book of Job. Job said, saved by the skin of my teeth. It's like a, a biblical idiom for escaping, a narrow escape, if you will. The Bible says that some people are saved by the skin of their teeth. Uh, Paul said it, yet so as by fire. It's possible then to be saved, to be born again, to be a Christian, to initiate a relationship with Jesus, and then stop growing. And there are people like that. Maybe we all have a bit of that in us sometimes. Did you, uh, some people are saved, but they bear little fruit when they could bear a lot of fruit. Some people have eternal life, but they never really experienced the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. And that's really sad. I heard a pastor once say, imagine that you went to heaven and they showed you around and they took you to a large warehouse full of all kinds of valuable things. And then they said, these were all the things you could have had if you asked for them, but you never did. Now, what if you had a software? Maybe I'm going to speak your language. You have a really expensive software that you bought, a software package that you bought. Are you like me? I'm kind of intuitive. I don't read the manual. I just kind of dive in and I start using it. And what happens then is you kind of, you play on the surface of your software. You can do the basic things, but they call the power user the one who really researches that software and realizes the kinds of things that she can do with it, the kinds of things that he can do with it. You want to be a power user when it comes to the things that God has made available to you. But many of us are just like, well, I'm saved, yet so as by fire. I'm saved, but by the skin of my teeth. Salvation is no small thing, but it's the initial thing. And so if you read your Bible, what you will see is that there's much more to the Christian life than most people ever experience. I know a lady who lived in Michigan and she, start, she went out every winter morning, and she started her car to warm it up. She hated the winter. She didn't really curse, but she just would complain and grumble about the ice on her windshield and about how cold it was and how cold her seats were. Until one day in July, she accidentally punched a button on her key fob, and her car started on its own. What she didn't know is that she had heated seats and an automatic car starter, but she went through two winters without ever using them because she didn't know she had them. And that's a parable, you know it is, of Christians that like, well, I'm saved. Well, that's great that you're saved, but there's more. And that's why step number one in having a fire of faith that burns for all of your life, we talked about it last week, is genuine salvation. And that's why we started this morning with, come ye sinners, poor and needy. That's where it begins. And this was emphasized in our worship service and our singing worship service today. And that is that we throw ourselves on the Lord for our salvation. And we're going to kind of repeat that at a wedding last Saturday. And I've told you these stories before, and I often tell them at camp. I tell the story about the little boy that went for candy, and he wouldn't reach in with his hand later on. He, the, the proprietor of the store reached in and gave him candy, and he told his dad, the reason I let him do it is because his hands are bigger than mine. And I've told, I often tell the story at camp, a true story about Pastor Bailey Smith, who wanted a bike when he was a boy, but his dad would never buy, or he wanted accoutrements for his bike. He wanted a horn. He wanted streamers. His dad would never give him any money for his bike. 
many weeks later, he discovered his dad at the same time was buying him a brand new bike. And so I told the couple that got married on Saturday, and uh, Kyle and Emily, and I'm telling you, and I tell kids at camp all the time this, God's hands are bigger than yours. And God's plans are greater than yours. What did Paul say? Eye has not seen, neither has ear heard, neither has entered in the heart of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. You concentrate on loving God. He concentrates on having unimaginably good plans for you. And so I would tell campers, and I want to tell you campers, I want to tell you this. You think you have a good idea for your future, but God is all-powerful and all-knowing and good and righteous, and his plans are better than yours, and his hands are bigger than yours. And so we want to talk about what's the next step then in terms of like building a fire of faith. So remember this, and write it down. By the way, the notes to all of my messages each week are on our church's website under the Sunday Live tab. If I, say, if I talk too fast, and sometimes I do, because I like to get a one-hour message in 45 minutes of time, then you can always go back and you can listen again. Or if you're having trouble sleeping at night, you could use it for that. Or you can look online and you can read the notes and you can say, oh, that's the scriptural reference. This is the place I want you to take your Bible, open it in your lap, and I want you to look at it right now. Please take your Bible and, and open to the, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. We're ultimately heading to the passage in Romans 12, but I want you to see something about what we're going to do is we're going to challenge you to go wherever Jesus tells you to go, do whatever Jesus tells you to do, say whatever Jesus tells you to say, present your body as a living sacrifice, consecrate yourself to God. This is step number two in having a fire of faith that burns all your life. You're genuinely saved and you give yourself to God like a sacrifice. You consecrate yourself and your life to God like an offering to God. And many people through the ages of the church have found the power of a consecrated life. Only God knows the power of a consecrated life. Only God knows the joy of a consecrated life. And Paul exhorts people in Romans 12, we'll see it. But before we do that, who are you consecrating your life to? Is this being good or is this being bad? If I'm going to trust my life to someone, I want to know that that someone has my best interest at heart. And so I want you to see something about Jesus. And if you were a camper, I would say, say 7-Eleven. I won't make you do that right now because Lois doesn't want me to do that. So I won't do that. Like, don't, I don't make you talk when Lois is around. I wait till she's gone. Then I, if she's ever gone, I make you talk. But in camp, I would say, say 7-Eleven right now. And then kids would say, 7-Eleven. And then I would say, you remember that because you're going to want to make your way back to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. And it's going to tell you something about what Jesus is like and why you should trust him with everything. Are you ready? Matthew in chapter 7, and by the way, there's also the passage, it's repeated in a, in a little bit different form in Luke and chapter uh, 6, but in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, it's easy to remember. Here's what it says, Matthew 7, 7. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What, what is God like? Well, he's like, in some ways, he's like that person that has something for you, and he's just eagerly waiting for you to ask so he can give it to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. This is the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is like, this is like some headline teaching of Jesus, some of the most famous teaching of Jesus, the distillation of the message of Jesus. This is what Jesus wants us to know about what God is like. He said, you ask him, he's eager to give you. He's eager to give. Which of you, he uses an illustration that's sweet, which of you, if his son asked him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, Give good things to those who ask him. What is God like? This one that's asked you to trust him with your life. Oh, he's good. He's generous. He's eager to give. His hands are bigger than yours. His plans are greater than yours. You can trust all your life. God's never going to be anything but good and eager to give. It took me a long time to realize that God will judge, but he's not eager to judge. It's not his character. He's good and he's eager to give. He's good and he's eager to gift. He will not allow the guilty to go without punishment. That punishment must fall on the guilty or on his son, our Savior, Jesus. But he's eager to give. And so understand, this is who we're talking about. The, at, at camp, the kids will be out and they'll be doing their challenge courses, their initiatives. And then over and over again, they'll say, you got to trust God. you got to trust God. And I think sometimes that's a little bit vague. I want to say, trust God with what? In what circumstance are you going to trust God? And then I would tell them, I would say, trust God with a list of things that keeps you awake at night. Trust God with your past. Trust God with your guilt. Trust God with your future. Trust God with your hurts. Why? Because he's good and kind and he loves you and he knows the future and eye is not seen and ear is not heard and you can't even imagine the things that God is preparing for those who love him because his hands are bigger than yours and his heart is greater than yours and his plans are greater than yours. This is who we're talking about. And so we begin by saying, God, I trust you with my sin and my guilt and I want to be saved. To experience the blessing of God, you've got to know him by heart and follow his ways. So let me, remind, let me remind you, of course, to experience the blessing of God, you want to be his child in the sense of born again, his child. That's what we talked about last week. You want to know that you have genuine salvation, which he gives to anyone who asks. As he said in his word, he's not willing that any should perish. Whoever comes to him, he will save. He, God won't turn away a repentant sinner. Can I tell you, this week there was a boy who was at camp, and he was really, he'd never been to camp before, and his family only started to go to church a few times this year, and this boy was listening so carefully, and when I was talking about trusting God with your sin, you could tell his back straightened, and he set up, and he just tracked with every word. He came at lunchtime to talk with me, and he said, okay, I think when I came, when I came to camp, I might have said I was a Christian, but when you were talking today, I realized that I want to do what I got to do to become a Christian. I, I want to become a Christian. And he said it like 
there were a series of things you would have to do over a long period of time. And I said, well, can I, I can explain that to you. And I wanted to get his counselor because it's so much fun to be the midwife when somebody comes to life. You know, and I'm like, I want to get his counselor in. And he goes, no, no, no. He's like, so explain it to me right now. So I explained a few things to him. And I said, later, to, later this afternoon, we should sit down because I can explain this to you. I told Lois on the phone, she says, you should get to him right away. I'm like, well, if he believed, he believed already. I was like, if he falls out of a tree or something. <laughs> that afternoon, he came with his Bible, his counselor, and, and I went outside and I sat down at a table with him. I said, now here's how it works. You could be saved today. I want to show you that in the Bible. He goes, you can? Yes, I'll show you in the Bible. So he took his Bible, and I turned, and I go, do you like reading? He goes, yeah, I do. I go, okay, I'm going to have you read then. So I took his Bible, and I, went, went, and I turned it around, and it said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he goes like this. He goes, whoever will call upon the, okay, okay, okay. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay. And he's a big, broad smile. Okay, okay. And then I showed him another passage. Like, remember when you were little, maybe you went to Sunday school, and they said, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever what? He goes, believe, okay. Yeah, you know it. He's like, okay, okay. And it's just a big smile. Okay. And he got saved. I said, tell your friends. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna tell your enemies later, but it'll be easier to tell your friends right now so everybody you see just tell them you got saved. So he's going around camp going, hey, I got saved. Everybody was rejoicing with him. Are you saved? Are your sins under the blood? Are you forgiven? I showed him the story. I love the story of Jesus where the publican, the sinner, goes, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he goes down that day justified. And he goes, okay, okay, okay. And he smiled, big, sweet smile. How about you? Could you say, yes, there was a day when I realized what Jesus did for me, that I was guilty, deserved to die and go to hell, but that Jesus died on the cross to give me his righteousness, to take my sin upon himself, I believed. I passed from death into life. I became a Christian. I was born again. Does that happen to you? That's, that's number one. This is what we believe. But you understand, this is just the beginning. This is just the start. It's wonderful. But the Bible says you need to move beyond that. It's an elementary thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a shockingly wonderful thing. But the Bible says you want to move beyond that into the deeper things, says that very specifically, I'll show you. Understand, this, Jerry Bridges says, these are the bookends of the Christian life, the righteousness of Christ and walking in the Spirit. So there's this, this is how you get eternal life, you're saved. But then there's this, this is how you get abundant life, you learn to walk in the Spirit. But there are people who are saved and have eternal life who never have abundant life. They still are plagued by their problems and their sins and they're, just, and they're not growing and they're not changing. Their kids have never seen them ever change. Their kids have never seen them ever grow. Their kids are, their wife is, you know, waiting for just a little bit of Christian growth and never finding it, looking at it like, there are people that say, yes, I'm a Christian. Listen, sometimes I've had people, like they died and, their friend, and, and you said at their funeral, they were Christian and the people that work with them said, I never knew that. the people you work with, it should be unmistakable that you are a, a Jesus follower. Do the kids, your friends that you, that you hang out with, do they know you're not, that you don't think you're better than them, but they know that you are wired completely different inside, that you believe in Jesus, that you know you're, this is the, this is the thing 
So you must be saved by grace. I'm kind of kind of overemphasizing that. It's, important, more important, it's very important for by grace we're saved through faith. That's not our own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not of works. So when no one will boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know that. We, Titus 3, we're, we ourselves were once the foolish and disobedient and slaves to various passions and pleasures and we passed our days in malice and envy and we hated others and we hated one another. But when the goodness, did you catch that? When the goodness, what does it say? When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared to us, he saved us. So Paul, in writing to Titus, is describing the salvation experience as having an epiphany of the goodness of God. Like, whoa, when I realized how good he was, then I threw my sins on him and I gave him my life and then my life changed. And this is what it says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, thanks be unto God, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And then Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted righteous. That's an instantaneous, like you, you're born or you're married, you're born again. The thief on the cross he immediately received forgiveness of his sins and he went to heaven the day he died. The Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee was a religious good guy. The publican was a bad dude. When he saw that he was a sinner and repented of his sins and believed he was justified that day, the Philippian jailer, if you recall, in the jail, earthquake at night, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And if your household believes, they'll be saved. That night they believed, they were saved, they were baptized. This is step number one. It's, it's actually the only really step necessary is if you're saved, God is going to hound you like the hound of heaven. He's going to stay with you. But it will be possible for you to resist living an abundant life. And that's what I'm talking about here. So you have to go beyond salvation. Listen to this. In Hebrews, matter of fact, yeah, if you're quick, you can turn there or scroll there. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 5 and 6. Very specifically, about this. This is whoever wrote the book of Hebrews wrote this. An interesting thing. I'd tell you a lot more right now, but you're not ready because I want to move on to the deep things of God. This is what it says in Hebrews and chapter 5 and verse 11. Listen to this. About this we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers and work in Awana, I'm sorry, that's not in there. I, I slipped. You, you should be teachers. You, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness because he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works or of faith toward God, of instruction about washing, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Hey, those are big doctrines. Christ, salvation, eternal judgment, eternal reward. Those are big doctrines. But he says they're elementary and you need to move beyond them. Now that's what we're talking about. This was kind of like, I'm going to do that thing like pastors do. That was the introduction in a way 
to, to bring us with, with kind of a power to this point. Do you see that the Bible says your salvation is the beginning, not the end. It's the, your initiate, it's the commencement of your Christian life. It's the beginning. Now, how do you keep the fire of your faith roaring all your life? You live continually in spirit inspired and spirit-empowered obedience to God. And you kind of start that with a sense of consecration to God. Okay, God, I'm going to go where you want me to go. I'm going to say what you want me to say. I'm going to do what you want me to do. You should do it when you're young. You should do it when you're old again. But this is the second step, consecration to God. This is what Paul says now. Look in Romans chapter 12, our text that we read today. We talked about, we, we read from 11, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom of God, what is this referring to? If you go back in Romans, and we won't do that right now, we taught through Romans, you'll see that it starts with dealing with our sin, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then it talks about having salvation by grace through faith in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, it talks about living a holy, sanctified life, how to live a holy life, ending with chapter 8 that emphasizes the power of the Holy Spirit to help you live that sanctified life. And then it has this enigmatic, mysterious, and wonderful chapters 9, 10, 11 that talk about the sovereignty of God that ties our head in knots. And like, God would extend his mercy to you. And, he, and, and, there's, and there's the t- teaching on the sovereignty of God and salvation. And there's the, also the teaching on the responsibility of man. And it kind of leaves you scratching your head. Even the smartest of us, it leaves us scratching our head. In some great mystery that no human fully understands, God is at work drawing men and women to himself. And in a great mystery that nobody fully understands, a man responds to God in, and he has a human responsibility and we're scratching our head or better yet, we're on our knees and we're thinking, how God gives us his mercy is such a wonderful thing that it makes me want to do what? That's chapter 12. I, I beseech you therefore, brothers, in the light of his mercies. I'm begging you in the light of all these mercies. If you were to take your Bible, I did this this morning, and you were to go from chapter 9 and mark every place where it says mercy, God is talking about giving his mercy to Jews and Gentiles, the good guys and the bad guys alike. Over and over again, he keeps talking about giving his mercy, his mercy, his mercy, his mercy. Then when he gets to chapter 11, he says, this is beyond our finding out. Who has been the counselor of God? Who can give God advice? Who even understands altogether God? I don't know. But here's what I do. I argue about it with everybody. No, 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 that's not what he says. I try to convince other people that my view is right. That's not what he says. In the light of this mercy, what do I do? I do what's only reasonable, it says. It's only reasonable in the text. It says it's only reasonable in the light of this mercy of God that I would just say, okay, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll say whatever you want me to say. My life is a living sacrifice. And this is good for you. This is the best life. This is the best life. This is the abundant life. Young people, here, there's nobody out there going to offer you something better than what I just described to you. It's the same old, same old. It's the same old downward spiral of selfishness, the downward spiral of sexual immorality, the downward spiral of drunkenness or drug abuse or, or burning your life down in a pile on trying to, get, to gather things or making a name for yourself, which you're going to figure out someday we weren't here to make a name for ourselves. We're here to point people to Jesus. This is the heart of how you live an abundant life. You go beyond salvation. You consecrate yourself to God. 
you learn to walk in the Spirit. In a word, you obey what Jesus said. He'll, he'll, he'll inspire you and empower you to do it. But you will obey what Jesus said. And that's why Jesus, in the same passage where he's talking about how good the Father is and how eager that he is to give, he tells a pretty interesting story. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears these words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house. He dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. I'm reading right now from Luke 6. It's also in Matthew 7. I'm reading from Luke 6, 47, 48. Like the man who built a house and dug down and laid the foundation, and when the flood rose and a stream broke against the house, he couldn't shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and doesn't do them is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The stream broke against it and immediately fell, and the ruin of the house was great. And Jesus introduces that story in Luke 6 by saying, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say? Often when I ask people, what is this story about? They'll say, it's about building your house on Jesus. That's not really what it says. They say the one guy built his house on Jesus and the other guy didn't build his house on Jesus. So when the storm came, the guy that built his house on Jesus stood and the guy that, that's not what it says. That's true, but it's not what it says. What it says is both of these guys heard the truth about Jesus, but only one of them obeyed what Jesus said. If you want your house to stand for the rest of your life, you get saved and you do what Jesus says. If you want to have a, you can have a, you can be saved and have a pretty screwed up life. <laughs> I know people like that. I, I, I've been people like that. You can be saved and you can make some pretty serious mistakes. It's like Iwo Jima. Do you remember World War II uh, buffs? Iwo Jima, they take this, they take Iwo Jima. The Marines take Iwo Jima at great cost of life because they need to build an airstrip so they can reach Japan with their bombers. And so they're willing to pour American lives onto Iwo Jima, and they literally do. There are casualties in the thousands, horrifying casualties. The, the Japanese are dug in on Iwo Jima. They're, they're embedded in caves, and they're fighting for their life. They're serious. They're going to go down, eat one man at a time. But the Americans pouring lives onto the beach in the thousands of casualties and dead, finally they raised the, the flag on Suribachi. And there's this iconic picture of the five Marines with a flag. But what most people don't know is that after that, after they hoisted the flag on Mount Suribachi, after they took Iwo Jima, there were still casualties after that. Those, some of those same Marines that raised the flag were later killed by snipers. Or, or, or defiled in, in terrible ways, unspeakable ways. And so it is with believers. It's possible for you to be a Christian, and yet you're a young man, and you know you're saved, and so you, you know all the words. you got the Awana verses, but you never obey the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. You never live the abundant life, and you're vulnerable. Yeah, you'll go to heaven when you die, but you're vulnerable to the enemy. It's like, sure, you took the island, but he's still going to have, Satan is still going to have victims after we take the island in salvation, I've known people like that. Mark Boucher would tell me, you can tell the story of my son Travis, of a boy in our youth group, a sweet boy. Everybody loved Travis. He was a stout kid, played football, knew no fear. Handsome girls loved him. He went through a series of difficulties. He walked away from the Lord for a while, though I believe he knew the Lord. He didn't walk with the Lord. He got involved in some partying and some drunkenness and some fast motorcycles, not that that's a sin. And he got involved in some stuff like that. Finally, he made his way back, but because of the 
the drugs they had to take because of an accident in his motorcycle accident and some other factors we're not really sure of one night. He despaired of life and he took his life. I believe that Travis Boucher knew the Lord based on some information that I have and conversations. But I also believe that Satan will take you to hell if he can. But if he can't take you to hell, he'll ruin your life. He'll kill you, even if you're a Christian. So this is life and death. It's very serious. That's why we don't just say, I'm saved. We say, I'm saved, and I'm serious about building my life on the foundation, which is obedience to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's, we do exert human effort, but it's inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the human effort alone would never work. But this is what it means not to be saved, but to have the abundant life, to live in the abundant life. And Jesus would say to us, why do you call me Lord? But you don't do what I tell you. So if you're a camper and I'm sending you home, I'm saying it's wonderful that you got saved and you had an emotional connection with your friends and that emotional connection is going to go away really fast and that girl's going to maybe break up with you and you, know, you won't ever see her again and you'll forget the camp songs and all of that. But there's Jesus and his Holy Spirit indwells you. And there's that matter of you yielding to Jesus every day when you go back to your school, when you go to work. Will you obey him in the power of the Holy Spirit? Will you listen to the sweet, quiet voice of the Holy Spirit and believe that God will empower you to obey him? And will you live the abundant life? Listen, that's probably where many of you are right now. Yeah, you answer the right question. I'm safe. Okay. But are you, in what way do you need to experience the abundance of Jesus? I was preaching to the kids this week, and it hit me, an area of my life, I'm like, oh. I said to them, you know, go to your cabins and pray about what area of your life, and the Lord's going like, eem, eem, eem. It's like, hello. He's knocking on my shoulder. I'm like, oh, not that. And then I bet you wish you knew what that was. <laughs> it had to do with my finances, I'll just tell you that. And it's like, hey, the Lord says, can I be in here? Can I have that? Jacob, when, when he had an experience with God, he wakes up in tithes. Can you imagine? Like, I think that's humorous. Who taught him that? He just, he wake up, he wanted to give a gift to God. Let me ask you an important question. If you're saved by grace through faith, and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which all believers are, the Holy Spirit living in you, God is living in you, that you and God, God living in you, let me ask you this question. Who's the boss? No, but no, really, who's the boss? Who's Lord? Kurios. Who's the, who's the one who calls the shot? You see, we always say salvation by grace through faith alone. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't know how to say it better, but there's a trick though. <laughs> it's not a trick. There's a piece you need to understand. When you do just simply receive salvation by grace through faith, you are no longer the boss of your life. You no longer can say, this is what I think, and this is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to go. Because you say, I'm not the boss. I got to check with the boss before I do anything, before I say anything. Is that okay with the boss? Before I go anywhere, is that what Jesus wants me to do? That's a beautiful way to live, but it's a little bit scary. That's an important question. We trust God because he will give you life at his best. And that's why Paul says, in the light of all these mercies, I plead with you, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that you consecrate, dedicate in holy dedication, consecrate yourself to God, which is only reasonable. And don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the inside out. So in other words, you have the option. You can be like J.B. Phillips said in his paraphrase of this. You can be squeezed into the mold of the world or you can be inside out transformed by the power of God 
That's, that's amazing. That's how good God is. God is good. He's gracious and merciful. In the light of these mercies, we present our, our bodies as a, as a sacrifice, as a, as a living offering to God. Don't misunderstand this. There are people, holiness teachers, who I have a lot of respect for, don't agree altogether with a kind of a Keswick doctrine where they teach there's this, there's this unique mystical kind of consecration that you consecrate and then you don't have any human effort. And I think that's aberrant. I just think it's wrong. I, I really appreciate the spirit of it. It's like a second work of grace doctrine. I think there should be second and third and fourth and fifth and continual works of grace. And they may have some mystical element to them. I kind of like that too. But what I'm talking about is really straightforward. And that is you just say to God, God, it's not the power of your prayer or your resolve. It's that God hears your prayer. And you say to him, okay, what Ken said, I believe it. He showed me in the Bible. So here I am, God, like a kid at camp. And I'm going, something deep is calling to me, and I'm following. Yes. And then God leans over, and his angels leans over. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? He invited us into his life. Will God keep his promises? Yes, he will. Will God pursue his own? Will he protect his own? Will he provide for his own? Will he convict his own? Yes, he will. He's better than you and I, and we love our kids. He, if we then being evil, know how to give good gifts to our sons and daughters, how much more will our Father who's in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And the best gifts are the ones that last forever. And so what I'm getting at here, if you've missed it, is can I challenge you to have a holy consecration of yourself to God? Just pray to God and say, God, I give you all of myself. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll give what you want me to give. I'll trust you that you have a better plan for my life than I ever could. I know your hands are bigger than mine. I know your plans are greater than mine. Rich Mullins did that. I'll tell you a story. Rich Mullins if you know who Rex Mullins is, you're old like me. He's like a contemporary Christian music singer for old people back in the day. And he was great. He wrote some, some great songs. He had kind of a unique ministry. He was a single guy, never married. Drove around the country in a Jeep, made a ton of money. Made a ton of money in Christian music. He made so much money that it troubled him. He felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, I, want you, I don't want you to take all that money and spend it on yourself. So this is what Rich Mullins did. Rich Mullins got a group of pastors and Christian leaders together and created a little board of directors for his wealth. And he said, I want you every year to calculate what is the average um, salary of a worker, of a common laborer in America, and I want you to give me that much money out of all this money that comes in. I want you to give me that much money for my salary. And then I want you to decide where the rest of it goes and during his lifetime, that's what he did his entire life, as long as he lived. And, and some of that money went to, uh, to indigenous peoples in the Southwest, and he took a real interest in them. He would go and live in these huts with these Indian children, and many disadvantaged people, difficult people, problems with alcohol and such, and he would go, he would go, he was, his song was sweeter. His life was more powerful because he was consecrated to God, and the, and the evidence was he consecrated even his money to God. It's not mine, God. It's yours. My time isn't mine. It's yours. My words, I can't just say what I think or what I want to say. I have to put it through a filter. Would this be true and honorable and good? So today, I'm thinking about 
a woman whose name was Helen Barth. You, you wouldn't know who Helen Barth is, but I do because when I was a little boy, my mother had a, uh, she had a, a record player and she had a record by Larry Whiteford, who I, was a pastor that sang and I eventually got to work with him. And she had records by Gloria Rowe, who had beautiful keyboard stylings. And she had records by Helen Barth, who used to sing on Moody Radio. Helen was a singer when she was a little girl. She loved to sing. And then she became a dance band, a blues singer and a dance band singer. It took her to some shady places, but she had a good heart. She loved working with kids. She decided that she needed some more training to work with children. And she was a good, good egg, so she, she heard that she could go work with children, but she needed to go to college, but she came from a really rough family that didn't have much money. So Helen heard about a school that was tuition paid, that donors paid the tuition. And if you got to be in that school, you could go without paying tuition. And that's how she ended at Moody Bible Institute. And Helen Barth was very sincere, but when she was there in chapel, one of the first chapels, some of the other girls got up and they began to tell about how they got saved. And she thought, Wow, that's, that's remarkable. I don't remember ever having that experience. And that night she went back to her room at Moody and she prayed and she was saved, but she didn't tell anybody because she was sure if they found out that she came to Bible college unsaved, they would kick her out. And so it was a long time later that she would say that she got saved at Moody. One time she was singing and a boy came up to her after she was singing and said to her, you used to sing in a dance band, didn't you? And she was kind of shocked. She said, how did you know? And he could tell, I could tell the way you were singing. Well, that broke her heart because she wanted to put her past behind her and consecrate her song to God. So she went back to her room again. And she got down on her knees and she said, God, I just want to sing for you. She just made it, you don't want to have to do this, but it's what she did. She said, I, from, in my lifetime, I just never want to sing unless I sing for you. And she consecrated her singing to God. Well, later... They put her on Moody Radio. And so people all over Chicago and all over the nation that would listen to Moody Radio would hear Helen Barth singing live on Moody Radio. And one day, while she was singing, Tommy Dorsey, leader of a famous dance band, stops at Moody Bible Institute while she's singing live on the air and waits for her to come off the air and offers to have her travel with him in his dance band. She was very gracious about it and thanked him. But she said to him, you know, I've, I've made a deal with the Lord that I will only sing songs for the Lord. And so I appreciate your offer, but I can't take it. There was another man that heard her on the radio. His name was Rainey. He was a pastor in Michigan. And he thought she had such a lovely voice. He imagined she was a lovely person. And so he went to see her in person. And sure enough, she was lovely in her youth. And he arranged to meet her. And uh, he was single. And she was single. And so he arranged to have her come and sing at his church to edify his people. <laughs> and he was also a smart young man. And so Helen Barth went to Rainey's church. Helen went to Rainey's church and, and they eventually got married. And when people heard they were going to get married, she was so popular on Moody Radio that they decided that they would invite anybody who wanted to come. And their, their wedding was at Moody Church and there were 1,800 people there. And George Beverly Shea sang at Helen Barth's wedding. They started a little church in Dwajak, Michigan, called Calvary Bible Church. There was a divorced woman that lived there, and a friend who had been praying for her um, 
died, and they had her funeral at Calvary Bible Church, and her friend, this divorced lady named Charlotte, went to the funeral, and the pastor gave the gospel, and Charlotte got saved, and Charlotte was my grandmother. And my grandma and grandpa got back together by the grace of God. We're living together the rest of their life. Follow the Lord. Helen and her husband, Rainey, went off to the mission field. They went to Germany. And they served down the mission field in Germany. They came back and they sang with Billy Graham in rallies across the nation. I was at a homeschool meeting. Uh, warning, long story. Um, I was at a homeschool meeting. Uh, a few years ago, and there were thousands of people there. And I thought Helen Barth was dead. I figured she couldn't possibly be alive anymore. She lived to 98, by the way. But I thought, well, she couldn't be alive anymore. And, she, and, and Al Smith was licking him, and he goes, I'd like you to hear from Helen Barth. And I'm like, Helen Barth? She couldn't possibly be alive. Sure enough, this white-haired elderly lady gets up and sings, and I'm like, that's the song I remember when I was a little boy. She would sing on records when I would go to sleep as a little boy. My mom would say, she taught me music, even though she didn't personally teach me music. I mimicked her style. Helen's daughter said, your mom does sound a lot like my mom, she told me one day. A few years later, I was assigned to run this ministry in Flint, and I got a phone call that my brother Nathan, who's a piano player, was going to be in town. I said, why don't you stay the night? He said, sure. I got another phone call, and this was really a surprise. They said, Helen Barth is in town and Rainey, and we'd like to tour the inn. I'm like, okay, well, that's great because my brother's here. I said, we'll make you a deal. I said, I'll make you a deal. We'll give you a free night stay if you give us a free concert, and my brother will play the piano for you. And she did that. You remember that? Out in the lobby, we had this beautiful grand piano right in front of the fireplace. And that night, this elderly, godly, consecrated follower of Jesus lady stood and sang, and then she testified and exhorted the kids in between. It was an amazing thing, and that's how I knew the family. So when she died, her daughter called me and said, would you be willing to give my mother's eulogy? I was shocked. They didn't know him that well, but I realized that God was arranging something sweet. So I called my mother, and I said, mom, you aren't going to believe this, but you know your mentor, the lady you looked up to, she passed away, Helen Barth, her funeral's going to be in Indiana. Can I pick you up? Because I'm doing the eulogy. So I picked my mom and dad up, and I got to do the eulogy at Helen Barth's funeral. And you can see it. I, I linked the video on our website. You can watch it if you want to. At the end of that, they handed me an honorarium. It was right about a time when my ministry ended at my last church, and I was unemployed. And I was feeling pretty concerned. I gave the, I took the gift and it was generous. And I said, Mom, I want you to have this. This is about you. This is why God allowed this to happen. I want you to have it. I gave it to my mom. My mom said, no, no, no. I'm not taking that. I go, yeah, you got to take it. I'm, I'm not taking it. This, God arranged this for you. And I want you to have it. And so I gave it to my mom. And then a, a few weeks later, I got online and I started raising money to go on the road. And my first donation was my mom gave me that money back. <laughs> At Helen Barr's funeral, I was able to say this. Only God can measure the power and the influence of a consecrated person. And this is what I believe. Helen Barth wasn't special. Rich Mullins wasn't special. 
God is special. And I believe he leans over and he listens to the prayers of any child, any young person, any middle-aged person, any male, any female, any broken person, any sinner who says, you can have my life. Take my life. Let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. That's the song that Helen sang. Would you sing that with me? I want you to stand while we sing this song together. And then Pastor Leo is going to come and dismiss us with his blessing. Sing with me. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing Always only for my King Take my lips and let them be Filled with messages from Thee Filled with messages from Thee Sing from your heart like you mean now. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be everything. 